This episode of Rick and Rick Rule the World is brought to you by Taskin, the first name in ultra-stylish, premium-quality travel gear, like the exquisitely designed Taskin 1 expandable backpack. With nine practical variations, the Taskin 1 is always the right size for wherever life takes you next. Save 30% on your next purchase when you use the promo code RNRTAKE30. That's RNRTAKE30 at TaskinSF.com. Welcome to a special episode of Rick and Rick Rule the World. I'm Rick Matheson, sitting in for both Ricks today, and I come bearing guests. This time out, we are pleased to welcome Jake McKinsey, Chief Executive Officer for Birmingham, Alabama-based full-service agency Intermark Group, which bills itself as the number one psychology-driven agency in the U.S., thanks in part to the way it leverages creative psychology in its work. Welcome to the show, Jake. Rick, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So I want to start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and Intermark Group and uh, your role there. Yeah, so I'm the CEO of the Intermark Group. And as you mentioned, we're the nation's largest psychology-driven marketing firm. So my background is in psychology, and we employ behavioral scientists on staff. I use psychology kind of as a catch-all because just about everybody had a psych class at some point in college. But we really mean the behavioral sciences, sociology, psychology, behavioral economics, etc. There's like 120 years-ish of academic research about how consumers think and behave, and more importantly, how to affect that thinking, how to affect that behavior. And so we apply that research to the marketing space to help people understand their customers on a psychological level, but also how to affect the behaviors and belief system of those customers. Now, one of the things that I find so interesting is your tagline. So the Intermark Group, we know what you're thinking. No, really. <laughs> what do you mean by that? And what exactly is psychology-driven marketing? You know, it's a great question. Just about everybody has reams of data on their customers. And they're usually demographic information, you know, like, oh, we're trying to sell to moms between the ages of 24 and 35 who have 1.5 kids and this household income and kind of attribution behavior. And we're trying to add to that psychological insights. We call them within sites. And it really is an understanding of what are they thinking about and what are they really seeking? And part of that is educating our clients on how people make decisions. Now, Rick, I know you know this because I've heard you reference this on earlier episodes, but people don't make rational decisions. We make irrational decisions or system one decisions, as psychologists say, and then we rationalize those decisions after the fact. So we are driven by emotion. So really understanding kind of the headspace of our customers and our potential customers is critical critical to affecting that behavior. That's step one. And then step two is defining well, what are the sort of things that we can say in marketing to change the beliefs and behavior of those customers. And sometimes it's simple stuff that you'll see other agencies talk about, like, oh, we need to leverage social. We need to let our customers know that this product is popular. And there are hundred-ish heuristics that often you'll hear people bandy about. And the challenge, of course, is that all of them work to some extent, but that's not the question. The question is, which ones work best against which customer set to get the best outcomes. And luckily, there's a lot of research and we have a process for helping our clients get to those answers. And what that means is once we get to the creative piece, you know, what does the ad look like? What does the TV spot look like or the radio commercial or the outdoor? We're working off a very different set of instructions, a different brief, if you will, than most other agencies. That's interesting. Now, paint a picture for us. Walk us through a, a campaign or initiative that you feel really embodies the Intermark Group's approach. The one that we're perhaps most famous for. We were a runner-up at the Can Lions a number of years back for Mohawk Flooring. Mohawk is the largest flooring manufacturer in the world, and they had a new product called Smart Strand. Now, Smart Strand was unique in that you can't stain it. And at the 
time, the industry was dominated by Stain Master. You know, everybody knows the term Stain Master. They were spending a fortune on marketing. And so all carpets sold. If you wanted stain resistance, you bought Stain Master. And Mohawk was a vendor of Stain Master. They used Stain Master on their products, but they had this new product that they didn't need Stain Master and they wanted to disrupt the industry. And the challenge was you're talking to everybody that might ever buy carpet. And they had a very small budget for doing so. And of course, they had lots of demographic information off who bought stain resistant carpets. And it was just what you might expect. It was often led by the mom of the household, had younger kids and pets, but they didn't really understand what was driving that decision. And what we learned through our process of mind mapping is that she was primarily concerned with the simple question of what's going to stand up to my kids and pets because I don't want to worry about my carpet. So with relatively modest budgets, we had to talk to a national audience and we decided to try to win at the point of sale. Now, in order to do that, we had to give these salespeople and carpet showrooms across the country a great story. So Mm -hmm. the outcome was, is we carpeted the animal enclosures at a number of zoos for very large animals. (laughs) So rhinos and elephants, giraffes, et cetera. We let them live on the carpet for a month and we turned these animals into social media stars. So it became this compelling must-watch deal. And then at the end of it, we cleaned the carpets just using water. And the results were outstanding, as they love to say in our space. It went viral. We had over 120 million people following the campaign at some point. And by the end of the campaign, Mohawk already had a six-month backlog of orders of people demanding this new animal-resistant carpet. They quickly went to number one in the space for kids and pets, where they remain to this day. So it's a good example of like really understanding your customers and that leading you to different creative solutions than we would have otherwise done. Gotcha. But what was at point of sale that sort of prompted or reinforced the campaign? So our target audience, when we started this strategically, was the salespeople. We wanted them to Mm -hmm. a simple story that they could tell when the mom came into the showroom and said, man, I need something to stand up to my kids and my pets. And then they have told the story about the rhino that lived on carpet. And of course, we accented that with images and triggers for that story in our point of sale material. So if you saw or to this day see Smart Strand in a carpet store, you're going to be told the story about the rhino that lived on carpet. You're going to see images of one of the rhinos that we made famous during that time. You're going to see QR codes where you can watch little snippets of the rhino living on carpet and and watching it be cleaned. Okay. So it essentially prompts the salesperson. It reminds them to talk about this story. And then if folks are really interested, they could scan the code and go experience it. That's exactly right. Because Mohawk didn't have $100 billion TV budget to share this story with the masses. So we had to find different ways of getting that story in front of folks. Now, we were lucky in that it did transition into pop culture. And this was covered by everybody from the Today Show to lots of local news stations around the country and really did transition into pop culture there for a while, which was awesome. Love it. Now, you mentioned mind mapping. So can you tell us a little bit about your process for that that gave you sort of that insight with this particular target audience? Yeah. So mind mapping is really the engine that makes all of this work. It's where we really understand our customers. So we take all of the information that a client knows about their customers. And again, it's usually demographic information. Sometimes they've got some survey data or behavioral data, like here's what they do when they go to our website, or these are the sort of products they shop, or this is when they upsell and things like that. Well, then we take that and we have a number of research tools 
that we can get psychographic data out of. And our team of PhDs takes all of that data to develop a psychological profile. Now, we love to sanity check that by actually speaking with the audience as well to make sure that we're getting at their true drivers of beliefs and behavior. And then they boil that down to really simple outcomes. Sometimes it's a very simple notion of like this audience is looking for the concept of leadership or this audience is looking for a carpet that will stand up to their kids. And we want to turn the psychological insights into simple language because that ends up in a brief and a set of instructions that you give to non-psychologists, that you give to creative people, that you give to media people. It's need to be able to take these what are sometimes academic concepts and turn them into actionable outcomes of people that are writing in TV spot. And so that's a in summary of how mind mapping works. It's a proprietary process that we've developed over the last 10 years. And knock on wood, it has achieved some absolutely amazing results for all of our clients. It sounds like it. And folks, if you'd like to learn more about this agency, you can find them at intermarkgroup.com, I-N-T-E-R-M-A-R-K group.com. We'll be right back. Hey, Rick and Rick Nation, don't forget to check out our website at rickandrick.com. It's double the Rick in just one click at rickandrick.com. And welcome back to Rick and Rick Rule the World. I'm Rick Matheson, and I'm talking with Jake McKenzie, CEO of psychology-driven full-service agency, Intermark Group. Now, Jake, there seems to be a lot of conversation right now around the psychology of target personas and that kind of thing. And I saw something online the other day, I think it was on LinkedIn or something, where someone was talking about he was feeling that his target personas have never been as helpful as context for his brand. And I think the hypothetical that this person threw out is along the lines of, I have a high-end, all organic icy shop a block from the beach and he said something like is it better to know that my target customer is a 42 year old mother of three who takes yoga classes twice a week and prefers healthy ingredients and the foods that she buys for her family or to know that it's 97 degrees at the beach today and i'm curious what your view is in terms of you know maybe there's an intersection of context either versus psychology or context and psychology is it one or the other is it both brilliant question rick and this really gets at that difference i was talking about earlier where you've got demographic information versus psychographic information. So context is a necessary step in understanding someone's mental state. Right. You know, if it's 97 degrees outside, well, they're looking to cool off. And understanding that context allows you to know how to talk to them. And it doesn't matter as much about the demographic information. And that's really what I'm trying to get across of understanding someone's psychological state is far more important than understanding their demographic information, what's driving them. And context and the cue that you give people to want want to interact with your brand are all necessary components and often are absolutely skipped by other agencies. And it's because they've got demographic information. And so they develop these personas and they'll make up these stories about the people that sounds like it's got insight, but it doesn't really. Right. It's not really getting it. What are they thinking and how do I affect that thinking? Interesting. Now, something I've always been fascinated by is the use of social norming in marketing. I've seen the studies that show that they're trying to get hotel guests to reuse their bathroom towels to help conserve water. That Prompting them to do that isn't nearly as effective as posting messages that say, for instance, 86% of hotel guests reuse their towels to conserve water. And I'm curious, one, if you use social norming, and two, if so, is it something that can be predicted or is it something that you can only come to recognize through like things like A-B testing or trial and error? Again, brilliant question. So yes, we use that concept. We call it social proof. It's a little bit broader than just social norming, but it's within that same category. It's telling 
consumers how other people behave because it's a shortcut or a psychological heuristic so that they don't have to think in order to make a decision. We absolutely use it. The question, how do we know what works? Well, the challenge is that all of the heuristics work a little bit. It's understanding which ones work best at the right time. So a lot of folks get at things like that through A-B testing of like, hey, let's test FOMO and then we'll test social proof and then we'll test a fear of loss message and, and some other heuristics that we all know work. And you can get at that. But going through the mind mapping process gets us there a lot faster. It gives us probabilities of which one of those heuristics like social norming, like social proof are going to work in the right circumstance. And so we're not just guessing at the beginning, we're making an educated assumption. That doesn't mean we don't do testing. We absolutely do. But if you're going to run an experiment, you start by saying, well, what do we know up to this point so that you're not just making up an experiment, but you're building on prior work. That's what we're doing here. We're building on prior work so that it's not just a guessing game. Love that. So it's not starting from scratch. You're at least taking a well-educated guess if you are having to do an experiment. That's exactly right. So as a result, our success rate is dramatically higher than folks that are just kind of guessing. And that's part of the challenge. You know, there's a ton of materials out there about applying psychology or the other behavioral sciences in marketing. And they'll give lots of these heuristics, but people don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to prioritize them. And often they don't know when to apply them. And that's really the value that we can add, understanding the customer and then understanding when and how to apply these heuristics to get the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. And is social proofing almost like peer pressure? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. The example I love to give is Apple for the long time, whenever they'd come out with a new device, new iPhone, iPad, etc., they would make everybody line up in front of the stores on the day it was released, right? Well, did you ever wonder why would they do that? It's not as if Apple didn't understand how mm-hmm. the internet worked or couldn't manufacture enough to meet demand on the day of. It's that they wanted that video shot on every news channel and all about people lining up for the product because that conveyed to the rest of the world, holy cow, this thing must be amazing if people took off of work and went and stood in line to go get this product. It's an application of social proof and it artificially creates demand because what we found through research is almost nobody buying that product had looked through the spec list to go, oh, well, the processor is 10% faster and the (laughs) camera has 12% more pixels in it. Instead, they're going, no, this is awesome. And we're unable to verbalize the specs on why it was awesome, but they came in thinking it was awesome. So Apple has leveraged social proof to create the sense that their products were awesome. Amazon has built an entire industry off this. You know, when you check out and they're like, people like you, also bought this product. People that bought this book also bought this book. It's a shortcut to decision-making. And they found that it is very applicable to a lot of their target audience when people are making those decisions. And that's just one of a hundred different heuristics that you can apply, but it's one that a lot of people are very familiar with. Also, there is scarcity, trying to build the sense of scarcity. And, you know, in some way you could say the Apple line is, oh my God, you know, because you often hear it's sold out, you know, and come back in three weeks. What are some ways that brands can create a sense of scarcity in I've got to get that right now. Well, scarcity is unbelievably powerful. Right. Interestingly, the major reason it doesn't happen more is because senior executives at companies are afraid of negative implications of scarcity. So, you know, over the last two years, there were supply chain issues across a lot of consumer packaged goods. And so we were advising a lot of our clients, embrace that, man. Right. Tell the public like, hey, we're running low on product. We're going to do our best to ramp up production. Because what that does is it juices demand. It makes people want things irrationally when they think they might not be able to get it. 
And so simply embracing and being transparent about what's going on in your marketplace. You know, if you're new in a market, let people know you've got a limited supply. If you're running into growth issues, let people know and embrace those as opportunities. Instead, executives often fear like, no, 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 we don't want to tell people that they might not be able to get it because that says bad things about us as operators. And it's like, no, that's not how this works at all. In fact, the opposite, you know, if people think they can't get something or it may be in limited supply, all of a sudden that trumps anything else in this kind of reptilian brand takes over and we've got to have it. You know, it's like why toilet paper went on a run and there's, there's plenty of toilet paper. All the toilet paper manufacturers are scratching their heads wondering what we're doing. But we thought there was scarcity and so we made it a reality. <laughs> right. Great stuff. And there's more to come when we return from this short break. So stay tuned. This episode of Rick and Rick Rule the World is brought to you by Taskin, the first name in ultra stylish premium quality travel gear like the exquisitely designed Taskin One expandable backpack. With nine practical variations, the Taskin One is it's always the right size for wherever life takes you next. Save 30% on your next purchase when you use the promo code RNRTAKE30. That's RNRTAKE30 at TaskinSF.com. And welcome back to Rick and Rick Rule the World. This is Rick Matheson sitting in for both Ricks today. And we have a special guest to the show, Jake McKinsey, CEO of psychology-driven full-service agency Intermark Group. You know, you mentioned that neuromarketing is a subset of all of this, and I'm curious if you've done much work with functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, and what your thoughts are on it. We have not done that. We actually have a neuro lab here in Birmingham with our partners at University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB, that they just finished. And it allows us to use other sorts of neuropsychology, some eye tracking studies, galvanic response, facial recognition, so that we can expose people to, say, ads or messaging concepts or even product packaging engage how they are processing that information as opposed to how they tell us they process that information. Because it really gets at one of the hard parts of marketing. When you ask the consumer, why did you do something or why would you do something? They will give you an answer. The problem is most consumers don't really understand their own decision-making process. They're blind to it. We don't really understand why we make decisions. So we answer in ways that we think sound good. Well, here's what I think you want to hear. Here's an answer that I think think makes me sound smart. I don't want to say, well, I went and got ice cream because it was super hot that day. Instead, I say, well, the kids had a hard day of play and I wanted to give them a treat so that I'm a good parent. And Mm -hmm. so if you take people just at their word, you often end in very different places than if you really understand how that decision making happens. And that's why neuropsychology has a firm place in this whole process. Yeah. And you touched on something that I want to make sure listeners have clarity on and that I have clarity on. So in the mind mapping process, so when you're going to build the mind mapping, and get to the insights that you're hoping to at least kick off with. Do you use focus groups or are you talking to specific consumers? Uh, So yes, we use both qualitative and quantitative research. Sometimes we will put out surveys or polls or or things Mm -hmm. like that. We just structure the questions in very different ways than most other people do because we're really trying to get at roots of behavior and not just what people tell us. What people tell us is certainly useful, but trying to gauge how they're going to react to something different. Mm -hmm. So when we run focus groups, we usually have have a PhD running them because we're really trying to get at the roots of behavior and not just what you think we want to hear because focus groups are notorious for that. They tell you what they think we want to hear. 
Right. Yeah, that's why I was curious about at least some studies show that the least reliable indicators of a future purchase is focus group input, and that the most accurate indicator of a future purchase is fMRI brain scans. Now, it seems to map with other types of neuromarketing techniques and technologies, but I was just curious if that does bear out. Is fMRI something that you would do in the mind mapping process versus the testing process once something has been created? Yes. Often tools like that are most useful useful in sanity checking. Right. Does this message, does this product, does this image resonate in ways that I think that it will? And fMRI is really useful for that. You know, the famous example everybody likes to talk about with that specific technique was with the stop smoking ads, you know. In Great Britain, they put these horrific images on the packs of cigarettes, of tarnished lungs and things like that, thinking, oh, this is really going to change behavior. But, you know, when they use the fMRI, what they found is that showing the images in the packs of cigarettes to hardcore smokers still triggered the pleasure center of the brain. It made them want to smoke. Oh, man. And what we know now from that is that the pack of cigarettes was such a strong cue in the cue reward cycle that just putting something on the pack of cigarettes wasn't enough to change that behavior. You had to start prior to that cue occurring, which is why we now focus on trying to make smoking uncool. Like it is yeah. not socially acceptable. You don't want to be around people that smoke. Uncool people are the ones that smoke. And to make them kind of an ostracized segment of society, so that that cue occurs before you get to the pack of cigarettes. I don't want to be a smoker because once I'm a hardcore smoker has a pack of cigarettes in their hand, there's very little you're going to do to change their behavior. Right. I've always wondered about that because we know that that can be effective to frame the smoker as being uncool. How come we haven't seen that in campaigns around illicit drugs? Well, my non-politically correct answer to this is because a lot of times marketers fail to learn from the lessons of the past. There's tons of of studies about what works and what don't. But instead, it seems like every time a new campaign is kicked off, it starts with the creative idea rather than the research. And if you look at the research, they're pretty well-trodden ways of getting people to stay off of drugs or to use their seatbelts or any other public good that we want to accomplish. But the folks designing those campaigns, the folks funding those campaigns didn't start with a look into the existing research to see what worked. What can we learn from what worked? Instead, they make the same mistakes over and over again. So one of the things that Intermark Group has taken note of is this rise of tribal psychology and the way that individuals will seek out social groups or their tribes that sort of provide them a sense of identity and purpose. And this has been around forever, but it's taken on new life now that you can engage with your tribe pretty much anywhere, anytime through digital channels. What should brands do to tap into this need for belonging and community? Great question. So we talk about tribal psychology often in terms of how brands brands ought to take their core customers and use that as an asset. You know, we've got clients who have such a passionate fan base, people are getting tattoos of the brand on their arm because they're such brand fans. So what we do is we begin mapping, well, what does tribal psychology tell us about building that core community? And there are a set number of criteria. You know, you want to define who the enemy is, you know, like for Harley Davidson, I love using Harley because everybody's somewhat familiar with them. The enemy are minivans. Right. They are the antithesis of minivans. Vans. And so they have this kind of implied, not hatred, but they look down on people that are stuck in a minivan, <laughs> if you will. So you got to define who the enemy is. You got to have an insight, a call to action. You got to have actions that people within the tribe understand. Uh, Harley drivers all have a hand signal. For one of our clients, Rita's Italian ice, you know, it stained your tongue while you ate Italian ice. So your tongue might be blue or red for a little bit. So we came up with a concept called Suns Out, Tongues Out. So if you'd had Rita's, you stuck your tongue out and show other people you'd had Rita's. And that was a way of, within 
social media conveying that you are a brand fan. So it's a way of telling your fans how to act that attracts other people to act in the same way. And easy way to think about this is think about a sports team that you're a fan of. They have all of these same cues. Here in the Deep South, if you're a fan of Alabama, you know what they say, roll tide. You know how they dress, they wear crimson and houndstooth. You know how they act on game days and the behaviors that they engage in. So that's easy to spot another fan and set the expectations if you're going to be a fan of this, how to act and behave, which then furthers the brand. What we have found is that companies and products and services can leverage all these same drivers to help their business succeed. And this is a pretty well-researched area of topic that we actually have an upcoming webinar that we're going to dive into a little bit where we're going to cover some of this ground. Yeah, I want to mention that. So this webinar, that's how tribal psychology drives modern human behavior. I'm not sure when this episode is going to run, but I'm assuming that it will be on demand. That's right. It'll be on demand. You can come to the website. You'll download it. It's free. Continue to ask questions. um, And then we'll carve up pieces and parts of it and put it out into other content as well. We found there's a huge appetite of folks for psychology content and how to apply it to their brands. And so we spent a lot of time and energy talking about it, which is super fun for us. And we are trying to build our tribe of like-minded folks who want to apply this in their business. Fantastic. I want to say thank you, Jake McKenzie, CEO of Intermark Group. This was a fascinating conversation. I hope you'll come back to the show another time. Rick, I am flattered that you let me nerd out for a half hour and talk about psychology. So I loved it. thank you so much. I love doing this. I had so much fun and I would love to come back. Fantastic. Well, we will certainly have you back in the future. Thanks, Rick.